So I'm delighted to welcome today Rajiv, three-time CEO, three exits, and now the author of a book, Chase Greatness. Welcome, Rajiv. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. So life's looking pretty good now, but when, when are we going back to? Well, you know, we could probably go to back to so many different points where things were always a struggle, right? But uh, I don't know. Well, why don't we go to 2008, then eventually we're probably going to jump to 2020 at some point. But uh, let's go to 2008 first. How about that? That sounds good. It's, it's a nice long jump back. What's going on for you in 2008? You know, it's interesting. You know, back in 2008, I, I, I joined I joined as a kind of a co-founder of a startup and put in a little bit of money. And with my partner, we, we started to raise money. We started doing really well. You know, our platform and our idea seemed to have some traction. And then, you know, roughly in the 2008 period, as we know, the global recession happened. And, you know, for us, what was interesting is I remember being, you know, I'm here in Southern California, and I remember going to a dinner at this restaurant pretty much on the beach after we had raised a little over a million dollars. And I took my, my co-founder and like two or three... Uh, Three other people who were kind of pseudo employees for us, and we decided to go out for a dinner and just kind of celebrate the fact that we got this money and that you know, we had really getting a deal. We were really excited, and that was kind of like, like on, a, on a Monday in October, and then literally on a Wednesday in October, the economy collapsed, stock market falls 800 points like three days in a row, kind of a thing. Global recession, worst financial period since the Great Depression. Right? We we, we hit this kind of global recession. And my investors were not, were not immune to that. You know, I had seven investors. Of those seven investors, four ended up going bankrupt uh, within, you know, three to six months of the global recession. You know, one was an architect, one was a, like a home builder, one was a part supplier to, to Boeing. These guys were going bankrupt. And then about two or three months after they raised their money, they came to me and they literally were begging me for some of their money back. And so the, I had a big decision to make. Right. You know, I didn't have to give them back their money. I mean, they invested, you know, you, you know, you know what how it goes, right? You know, you, whatever you invest, you, you, you can lose. And I didn't owe them a dime. And I slept on it for, for, for probably more than a week. And my, my co-founder and I, we talked about it and we realized maybe we should probably be folks, maybe be more focused on being human beings here and supporting people who are really desperate and who are really stuck on tough times. And maybe that will come back and help us in the future by showing that that compassion and, and having that empathy. And we ended up giving them back, not all of their money. We ended up giving back about, you know, 35% of their money, which obviously impacts our operations and what we can do because our funding had, was drying up and we, we had money promised from VCs and that, that money kind of disappeared. And we were very much in the clean tech space, the going green space, so to speak. That's where the platform was sitting. And money started shifting out of there back then going to more companies that were focusing on cloud and those kinds of things right so we just got caught in this vicious cycle and so one thing led to another and for the next two or three years you know we tried to just bootstrap and get it going but we just could not get the funding to kind of get it get it up and running the way we wanted to and we eventually uh, found a partner who said gee we really like your ip and what you're doing and we eventually exited by selling the ip and it wasn't a home run or anything but it wasn't a, a killer either and so it was it was tough i mean you know it affected my health and relationships and it's very 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 stressful i mean i think it's really interesting first the comparison between 2008 and covid because a lot of people who are first time or new founders during covid it was the first time they went through this stuff and it could feel like the end of the world but it's after you've been in it for a while 
you've experienced the end of the world two, three or four times. But for you in that moment, it sounds like the choice of giving back, not giving back, had had proper consequences for you. It it wasn't just an it wasn't an easy decision because your other sources of fundraising by sounding had dried up because there was that shift as there is now. I still remember being on the phone. The guy, was, this guy was an architect in San Diego and a fairly successful one, right? And in 2008, you know, everything stopped. He literally is. He literally lost his business within a month. And you could say maybe he's a poor financial planner, but nobody kind of saw that coming, you know. And so, whatever. And you know, when you're on the phone with a guy who's in his 60s and he's literally crying because he needs some money, and and maybe maybe it was an act, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But I just give give back give back some of their money. They also lose some of their ownership too. So, but it was a tough time, man. It, it even put me in the hospital, you know, because of you know, my my blood pressure went crazy and everything. It was nuts. At the same time, you're trying to maintain a lifestyle for for your family too, right? And so, you know, luckily, I thankfully I had been an executive for a major Fortune 50 company for a long time, and I had enough money kind of socked away to kind of hopefully that you know, didn't change. But you know, you you burn through that, and after three years of kind of burning through that, and of really not and really not taking a paycheck, kind of bootstrapping, you're like, all right, when do you realize kind of enough is enough, and and then that's when we found that partner to say, okay, I'll just we'll just we'll buy your IP. So. If we can time jump, right? If you want to jump to COVID. So my business, so the name of my business is called is 1105 Media, right? 1105 Media is a B2B marketing and media services company. And our revenues generated before COVID was 55% event driven, like face-to-face events. So it mostly, it, it was 95% of the events were education and training conferences in the big data analytics space, and business intelligence and around the Microsoft stack. So, you know, helping train software developers on the latest and greatest or data analysts or whatever it might be. So, so I mean, it's a very B2B marketing media event type play. And so you know, we we're growing, we we're doing well and, you know, profitable, making money. And imagine all of a sudden March 2020 hits and you, you hit a wall and you basically you're driving your car. You hit a wall going at about 80 miles an hour and the car's going to shatter. Right. And that's kind of what happened to us. And you know, we went from being this really... We went from being about, you know, 170, 180 employees and literally overnight, you're sitting there going, am I even going to have a company tomorrow? It was quite the challenge, right? Because, you know, people can come to our events and we had to cancel all the events. We'd start refunding money back and all those kinds of things. You know, some of the customers said, hey, look, we're, you know, we're going to get through this and you just hang on to our money and we'll, we'll, we'll save it for, for another event. But there was a 24 to 48 hour window there where, you know, I had no clue we were going to have a company. You talk about who you're going to call. Look, no one had been through this, right? You, so there's no mentor for me to call because no mentor had been through a pandemic like this before, right? There's no case study for me to go read from Harvard, from Harvard Business School or Wharton or anybody to say, hey, in case of a pandemic, do this, do these five things. No, there, there was nothing, right? And so so after about a 24 to 48 hour window there where the pity party was over in my brain, you know, I rallied the troops and I said, we're going to go figure this stuff out. We're going to figure out how to do virtual events and we're going to, we're going to take the pay cuts and layoffs and furloughs and we're going to do everything we need to do to figure out how to, how to keep the company afloat and be successful and do what we need to do. But I'll be honest, James, man, I'll tell you, there was that 48 hour window, man. There, there, and, I, and I'm not the type of guy who loses sleep. I, I, I didn't sleep for two days. And this is not a pity party or anything by any stretch of the imagination. But when you feel like you've got a hundred and 180 employees who you're responsible for and you're trying to figure out what to do and how to help them they're afraid you know it's like 
You know, do they go outside and get COVID and pass it to their kids? Are they going to die? I mean, people are afraid. People are not people are not just afraid for their jobs or afraid for their lives. But, you know, look, people got through it and, and we ended up getting through it as well. In fact, I think it's because of our core values, because of our resilience and focusing on you know, really, really what mattered was what really kind of got us through it. And it was through that window there that I really kind of discovered, you know, there's that Simon Sinek book, Start With Why, right? And and I, and I kind of had a business why, but I never really focused on what, what my personal why was. My personal why was to focus on honoring other people's dreams. It's like, all right, we're going to go figure this stuff out, not just for myself, but for those around me. And so, and that actually l- l- led to writing the book. By the way, within six months, we, re- we returned all the pay cuts. We transformed our business. We transformed our relationship with our vendors. Like one of the things we did, we went to every, we got a list of every single vendor that we worked with. And we broke up the list and we took our top 10 most senior people, including myself, and we called every one of those vendors and said, look, we need your help. Here's the situation. You know, you need to, you know, we need you to either lower your prices to us or you know, do something, give us better payment terms. And so pretty much everybody except for one company did something. Even the big guys, Microsoft and Amazon gave us six months to nine months payment terms. Right. And so. People rallied, which was exciting to see. You know, the business community rallied. They helped support each other. One of the things a lot of people don't realize is that we did not take a dollar of government money. We did not take one dollar of PPP money. And so about a year ago or so, we started to come back with events. And this past December, we had an amazing, uh, past November, December, we had an amazing event cycle. And we have new event cycles starting up right now. And so, quite frankly, that time period of COVID of sitting at home and working from home, really allowed me to focus on what mattered and and really what, what it meant to be great. And that's what led into writing the book. And so do you feel that you discovered your personal why as part of this or were you clear on your personal why already? No, you know, I, I you know, I was so busy to really focus on my personal why. Like, you know, it's like it felt a little disingenuous, you know, but when COVID happened, like you had to focus on your own personal why. It's kind of like, you know, when you get on an airplane, the flight attendant says in case, of turbulence, the mask's going to fall from the ceiling. You know, what do they tell you to do? They tell you to put on your own mask first before you help the person sitting next to you. And, you know, my company was, my company, family, friends, were, were the people sitting next to me. You know, I felt I had a responsibility to first put on my own mask, take care of myself, and then be able to help them. Because if I was sick or if I, if I was so stressed, if I was having problems, then I couldn't help them, Right. And I think that's so true. And I was talking to somebody and he had literally asked me the question, what's your why? And I said, you know, I've kind of struggled with that. He goes, you know, Rajiv, I've known you for a long time. And I can tell you, I, I think your why is to help honor other people's dreams. I think the more you focus on that, the more you're focusing on honoring other people's dreams, your dreams will be honored in the process. And that made that, that really hit home hard for me. And so that's my, and so then that, that, that's been my why mantra now going on over three years. And so, so in order to put on my mask, one of the things I, I decided to do, you know, was, I had this idea for the book in my brain and, and, and I went up to my whiteboard at home and I wrote the word great on the, whiteboard, on the whiteboard. For a couple of days, maybe about a week or so, I kept staring at the word great. And I kept asking myself, and I wrote down, what does it mean to be great? Like, what does it really mean to be great? And after a week or so, I went up and I erased the word great. And it was written like, it was written, um, you know, horizontally and I wrote it vertically, the G-R-E-A-T. And then I wrote the words gratitude, resilience, empathy, accountability, and trust. And I created that acronym in my brain that that's what great means to me. It's like, can you practice gratitude? How resilient can you be in your professional and personal life? You know, can you, do you listen big and have a lot of empathy, you know, for what people are going through? 
How do you hold yourself and other people around you accountable? And then how can you trust them? So the trusting became a little bit of an interesting thing for me. So I went up to the whiteboard. I erased the word trust. I wrote the word transparency. And I realized one thing in the company, which was if I really wanted my team to trust me, I needed to be fully transparent. Like I needed to tell them, hey, this is what happened. This is the impact to our events business. This is what's going to happen to our to our cash, and the business, whatever. I needed to just be completely transparent with them and say, here we are. This is what's going on. I need you to trust me. If I just told them, trust me without any kind of background, they wouldn't have trusted me. I mean, you know, they would have, but you know what I mean? They wouldn't, the buy-in wouldn't have been as great. So I figured, okay, I'm going to open the, fully open the kimono. Here it is. And that worked. So that acronym became the basis for the book. And that's why it's called Chase Greatness, which is you want to try to chase those five attributes in your professional and personal life every day. In my research for the book, I found a couple of interesting facts. Number one is by roughly 2025, maybe late 2025, early 2026, the majority of the workforce is going to be Gen Z and millennials, right? Because boomers are retiring in droves over the next couple of years. So that's going to leave a gap at the top in terms of an age gap in the workforce. And so Gen Z and millennial are coming up and they're the most connected and probably the most technologically advanced generation in the history of the world, right? And it's like every every generation like that evolves. And so not only are Gen Z and millennial going to be the most uh, dominant workforce in the next two to three years, women for the first time, at least in the States, are going to be a little over 50% of the workforce, first time in history. And in my mind, that requires a different type of leadership. And I coined that as enlightened leadership. And that's what led to, hey, look, if you really want to change the world, if you really need to change your business, if you're going to chase greatness, then you've got to really practice enlightened leadership. If you sort of retrofit that narrative to both these situations, do you feel you, you held true to your definition of greatness in 2008 and in 2020? Look, I think 2008, which is a different time, it was 15 years ago. And I didn't have this concept in my brain. Like it wasn't like, you know, like now gratitude, empathy, compassion, kind of all those things are such such second nature for me because I try to really employ it as a daily practice. It's kind of like, you know, it's like trying to meditate today and sucking at it because you're thinking about 50 different things that all at once while you're meditating versus if you do it every day. Five years from now, it's going to become second nature. So I've been doing now that every day. So it's a very second nature thing for me. I don't even think about it anymore. Back then, you had to think about doing it. And back then, it was really more about there was that fight or fight mechanism going on in, in myself. And so I would say it's completely two different worlds now. You know, and if I was going to experience 2008 today, I think I'd be much better equipped to do it today than I was back in 2008. Because of your greatness framework? Yeah, pretty much. So how would you, if someone was a first time found or early stage or someone hadn't been through a shock, for example, would you, would you think this framework would get them through it? To me, entrepreneurship is all about empathy, right? And that's one of the pillars of the framework. And empathy is, you need to have empathy for the problem that you're trying to solve as an entrepreneur. You have to have empathy for your investors, you know, and in fact, that they want to be trusting you, but in order to trust you, you have to be transparent with them. So there's the second pillar, right? You know, empathy for your employees who are willing to take a chance on a startup and you need to be grateful for that. So that's, there's the other, you know, leg of the startup. 
and then you know, and then you need to you need to have some empathy for yourself and hold yourself accountable in that process because that's hard. You know, being an entrepreneur is not easy. And and then finally, you need to have you know, empathy for you know your customer base. You know, you want your customer base to trust you with a brand new product, a new solution, because that's what you're doing. An entrepreneur, you you, know, you want to make sure that you're providing a solution that 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 is actually fixing a problem. I've seen so many cases where entrepreneurs are out there, you know. They have a solution looking for a problem. You want to have that resilience to know that you know it's going to take some time for you to find that right customer who can help you get that next level. Just you triggered a thought in terms of when you said you need to have empathy for your customers when you find them. Do you think there's a luck element to that as well? I, I was I was talking to a VC a couple of weeks ago, and because of what's happened with things like ChatGPT and this generative AI space now. What's happened is I know so many people who have started AI companies, but AI companies in the frame of machine learning AI companies, right? And ChatGPT is a natural language processing AI company, right? Generative AI. And now that generative AI term, thanks to ChatGPT, is dominating the world. 100 million users in five days. So this VC is shifting all of its investment into generative AI companies and their secondary market that they're going into is longevity, but that's a whole different story. But the reason why they're shifting all their money into the space is because there were all these small floundering companies who couldn't get the time of day from VCs and other people because the VCs were focused so much on the machine learning side of AI, right? But the minute ChatGPT exploded, guess what? The money started flowing from that side to the other side. And so you had all these kind of small floundering companies, entrepreneurs, who all of a sudden wake up one morning. That's kind of luck. You know, you can say it's luck, right? So to me, it's not, it's more probably luck. It's really timing. So for example, back in 2008, the platform we had, the platform we had was essentially a mini version of what Etsy is today. The timing was just off, you know? I mean, had we done it three or four years later, I think it would have been a grand slam home run. But the time we had a timing challenge, right? So timing could be everything. You could be ahead of the game. You know, maybe the market's not quite quite ready, but you got to, if you really believe in what you're doing, you got to you know, stick to it. But in terms of this challenge, I think one of the number one questions I get asked by people is, how do I deal with the unexpected? And clearly, you've gone through quite a few unexpected, world shifting events. What are the what are the elements that you would say to someone? how they deal deal with that unexpected event you just you can't avoid it you got to face it maybe you need a day to sleep on it maybe you say okay you find out something at three o'clock in the afternoon you're like all right i'm not going to touch this until 9 a.m the next morning because no matter what i do now the problem's still going to be there at nine o'clock in the morning and so look ultimately you have to face it i'm going to get the quote wrong but yeah, it's like, you know, when, when a storm happens, are you, are, you the, are you running from the storm or are you the storm? But the, the point is, is that you got to figure out how you can be the storm, right? You, you got to figure out how you can go, go grab the bull by the horns and say, I'm going to go attack this challenge. And, you know, you, you go, go go create your little love list and you go figure out who are the people or what, what, what functions you need to do to help get you through this and you go do it. And that, and that can be applied to your personal life, your professional life, you know, whatever it might be. Like maybe you get diagnosed with some, some disease, well, avoiding it and saying, I'm not going to go to the doctor. Like, I, I mean, I, I have a friend who won't go see a doctor. Why won't you go see a doctor? Well, they're going to tell me bad news. Well, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know? 
I think also two things that resonate with stuff you said is one is that 2008 there was a physical consequence to that challenge in terms of that raised heartbeat and superior hospital 2020 was like kind of a a couple of days of kind of oh my god like so it's like not pity party as you said but just there's an intense emotion that comes with it acknowledging that it is okay to experience that emotion but then shifting quite quickly into acknowledgement and action and what helps with that it sounds like is being quite clear on your values and your why because that can guide your action in an unknown environment you know roughly where where you're heading values wise and with your why i mean in my case you know writing the book became cathartic for me right it became a way for me to disconnect from what was happening and it gave time for me to focus on myself the whole great acronym you know the acronym that i came up with that leads to the title of the book essentially became my north star right in terms of when i think about business and life you know it could be whatever you want it to be right you know maybe you need to go lose 20 pounds all right well let's be grateful for the fact that you know you need to lose 20 pounds and that you've got the right potentially support structure around you to help you lose that 20 pounds you need to be resilient to go to the gym to you know, to, to, to avoid the carbs and the sugars or whatever you need to do to avoid some of those things and still find ways to say, you know what, I'm going to give myself a target saying I'm going to have a donut on every Sunday or whatever it is you want to do, right? But you need to be resilient. You need to have empathy for yourself, have empathy for those around you, right? And, you know, have empathy for yourself. You might make a mistake. You might fall down in the process, but just get back up, right? You know, they'll fall down seven, get up eight. And then how do you hold yourself accountable on those around you, right? And, and then finally being fully transparent with those around you saying, look, this is what I need to do. And so the, there's an exercise that I'm going to be working on with. I'm, I'm a member of this group called YPO, the Young President's Organization, even though I don't look all that young anymore, but I joined it a long time ago. Uh, we're working on a project within our team, but our, little, our little forum groups, where we're doing something called a painted picture. And a painted picture is where you say it is March 23rd, 2026, and I'm, I'm sitting at the beach reading this letter I wrote to myself about what my life was going to be like in three years. You know, and you write this painted picture of what you want your life to try to be like, right? And, it, and you cover personal, family, and business. And what do you want your personal life to look like? You know, what are you doing? Because a lot of times what I find is that business leaders, entrepreneurs, focusing on one thing, you just want to grab that money. But what are you doing for yourself personally? Like in my case, as you know, we talked when we did the little pre um, thing, you know, I wrote a movie script. I just finished my second one, right? Because I've always wanted to be in, I grew up in, I, I was born and raised outside of Hollywood. I wanted to be in that world for a long time. So I said, I'm going to go figure that out. Well, what, can you, what do you want your personal life to look like? Oh, you want to go learn an instrument. You want to go run a marathon, whatever you want to go do. What, what do you want your personal life to look like? What do you want your family life to look like? Oh, in my case, you know, my oldest son is, two years out of college and he's got a great job and whatever, right? And my youngest son is just graduating and we have family vacations. You know, they're, they're busy, they're two boys and, you know, we, we, we try to have, two, we have two family vacations a year, right? So you kind of just kind of write that down of how you want your life to look like and that's called a painted picture. And the point of doing all this, if, if, if you don't focus on your personal and your family and your friends and other things, what's the point? Well, what, what's the point of being a successful businessman if your health is shit? And you can't enjoy the fruits of your labor when you're older. People say, oh, well, you've done really well in your career. You're successful. Like, what has that done for you? You know, money can't buy happiness, but money can buy time. It can the time to do other things. And so having, having looked back through this, the sort of 2008, 2020, the book, looking back at that narrative again, is there anything that's just really striking for you when you, when you think through that journey? 
Uh, you know, when the 2008, 2009, 2010 period was kind of going on, I cannot tell you how much of an abject failure I felt I was. You know, because we started to bootstrap the business. Co-founder kind of left because he needed money and he needed to go get a job. Um, and I kind of stuck on and I bootstrapped it and whatever. And so, man, you wake up every day and you know, it's like you get hit by, you know, you get hit while well, you get hit by a train here, you get hit by a car there, right? I mean, it's, it's tough and you felt like a real abject failure. And the amount of stress I had on me back then, you know, was incredible. I cannot tell you the amount of stress I had on me. And I don't think anybody understood what I went through in that time period. I don't think any, no, nobody did. In fact, no one did. And I know that nobody did. And again, this is not a pity party. I've done well, successful, and I'm okay. But man, I'll tell you. I mean, my my, my mental health was a, was was in the, was in the was in the shambles. Was shambles. You, know, you fast forward to 2020, and I think the 2008, 2009, 2010 experience prepared me for what happened in 2020 with COVID. Sure, I had that 24 to 40 hour window, but that window wasn't a even though it was a pity party, it wasn't a, a major mental health crisis for me because I'd been through what I'd been through. This was more of a, how do I help support these 180 employees? Like, what do I do here? Like, how do I tell people that they're not going to die? Or when I hear the stories of, of a friend saying, yeah, I'm going to the doctor's office and I just got done writing my will. Like, what do you say? What do you do? I mean, you know, it's so, you know, you, you go through certain fires, you go through to prepare you and 2008 to 2010 prepared me for 2020. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with you. I think it's really, I think it's really powerful to hear that, like, one crisis prepares you for the next, and we all, and we all go through. It. The first one is hard. It does have that wider impact, but it just makes you that much better the next, the next time around. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for today. It's been a really interesting chat. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As you heard today, coaching opens up a whole range of insights and areas to explore. If you have a potential moment to revisit on the podcast, or just want to learn more about coaching, book in for a 30-minute chat with me at peer-effect.com.